The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. So we finally got some rain on our dried up grass. And I think it's a metaphor that when the rain falls, our grass turns green once again. And in many ways, that functions like corporate worship for the Christian. When we're away and on our own, we, we shrivel up and we dry up. And when we gather together to sit under God's word, to worship together, we, we perk up again and we become green once again. So I hope you see the metaphor. And so if you're watching from home, we would invite you eagerly to rejoin us in person as well. Let's pray and then we're going to open God's word. Father, would you cause the life-giving rain of your word to fall upon our hearts now? And would you cause our hearts to soak it up with joy so that we would become more like Jesus, that we would be like that tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Do that in us through your word, by your spirit, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a classic hymn that most of you know, that poses a question in each of its verses, or sometimes it's a statement that's followed by the same phrase in every verse. Let's see if you're familiar with it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? But the blood of Jesus. That's right. And if in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council went the other way, deciding that circumcision was needed for salvation, this hymn would change a little bit, wouldn't it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus plus circumcision. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? In fact, almost all of the songs we sang this morning would have to be rewritten and revised, and they would read very weird. Uh, Let me uh, give you a little bit of an example, perhaps. The council has made a decision. Jesus was God's great provision, along with Gentile circumcision. Come now and get your incision. (laughs) We could probably get Dan to put that to some music. But that would be super weird for Christians to be singing about circumcision. But it would be tragic theologically. And it's a reminder for us that Acts 15 is wrestling with one of the most significant questions that the early church could possibly wrestle with. What is needed for salvation? What's needed to be saved? Is it Jesus or is it Jesus plus circumcision and the Old Testament law and keeping the Sabbath and all the dietary restrictions and so on and so forth? Or to put it in the words of the hymn, what can wash away our sins this morning? That's the question we're wrestling with. And it's a massive question and it's worth our time looking at. Let let me just give us a little bit of the context of Acts 15. It's the central chapter in the book of Acts. We we have uh, 1 through 14 and then after it's 16 through 28. And there are almost exactly an equal number of words, both before Acts 15 and after Acts 15. 
but it's also the center of the book theologically, examining the nature of salvation. And, and we've seen in the story up to this point that there's a tension being built up. Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus, and yet there's this tension. How do we coexist in the same church? If Gentiles are unclean, and Jews and Gentiles can't even sit down at the same table and share a meal. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. Our passage is outlined into four scenes, and I want to spend the bulk of our time in scene two, but I'm going to give you all four scenes. First, we get the dispute over salvation, verses one through five. Then we get the debate and the discourse in six through 21. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there, and then we're going to look briefly at scene three, which is the delivery of the decision in 22 to 35, and then the disagreement that's created later from 36 to 41. So look with me now at verses 1 through 5. Let me just set the stage really briefly. The Gentiles have been coming to faith in mass. We we, we just read about Paul and Barnabas in chapters 13 and 14. They're going around. They're going to the synagogue, preaching Jesus. And then they get kicked out of the synagogue, and they say, we're going to go to the Gentiles. And they preach to the Gentiles, and Gentiles are coming to faith in mass. And so now you have this mixed church full of Jews and full of Gentiles. The gospel is going forth as a light to the Gentiles. What could possibly go wrong? Well, Acts 15.1 gives it to us. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is a salvation issue for them. Look with me at verse 5. It's the same thing that they get when they go down to Jerusalem, or they go up to Jerusalem. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the issue. Not only do you need to get circumcised, but that's the very first bit of it. You've got to keep the entire Mosaic law, because this is what all Gentiles would have had to do if they converted to Judaism. And so these well-meaning Judaizers or party of the Pharisees come and they say, you got to keep the entire Old Testament law. Laws about Sabbath, what to eat, what not to eat, the feasts, the sacrifices, all of it. And it would have been outlined in Genesis 17 and Exodus 12 how foreigners are to carry out all of these things if they're to be in the community of the Jews, convert to Judaism, or just even live among the Jewish people. So these Jews are probably sincere. They're not necessarily trying to make it more difficult, but they're deadly wrong. They're adding to what God requires for salvation. This would be a little bit like if you're in a small church in rural Minnesota and, and you have 75 members in this small church in rural Minnesota. And then all of a sudden, 50 people in the town come to faith in Jesus. Hallelujah! What a great thing! But here's the catch. All of these new believers come from the local factory, and they're all converting from a Muslim background. And so you can imagine a church of 125 now, uh, about 50-50 in terms of sort of rural Minnesotans, and then these new believers, kind of fresh, excited, but they come from a Muslim background. So what do we do about head coverings? And what do we do about praying five times a day? Do we face a different direction now? What about dietary restrictions? Do we have to eat pork? 
What about reserving Ramadan in honor of Jesus? These are complicated issues. This is a little bit of what we see taking place in Acts 15. It's complicated. And Luke tells us in Luke fashion that no small dissension, meaning it's a huge issue. This is a massive issue. This is the center of the book of Acts and the trickle-down effect would reverberate even to today that we would rewrite every single one of our hymns if Jerusalem Council went a different way. That's what's at stake. So there's a huge debate. Paul and Barnabas, they can't settle it. So they send Paul and Barnabas and a few others to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders at the church in Jerusalem to take up this issue and to discuss it and to render a decision. So the stakes are as high as they get. The future of the Gentile mission is at stake. If, Jews need to be, if Gentiles need to become Jews culturally in order to go to Jesus, in order to be Christians, it could stifle the entire mission. It's a little bit like when we share the gospel. If we said to people, we really want you to become Christian. But I, I just have one caveat. It, in order to become a Christian, you've got to put away all that makes you American, and you've got to become like the French. And you're like, what? The French? No way. Th- that's a little bit like of what's taking place here. You've you got to become Jewish in order to become Christian. You've got to go through the joy, door of Judaism before you go to Christ. So that leads us to the debate and to the discourse in verse Verses 6 through 21. Now, in 6 through 21, what we get mainly are uh, Peter addressing the the council that's gathered there. And then we get James addressing the council. It also says that Paul and Barnabas spoke, but we don't really get the content of their words. But just notice what we get. We get Peter, we get Paul, And we get James, which is the half-brother of Jesus, who also wrote the book of James, who are the main speakers kind of advocating for this position, this argument. So what we have is this all-star team. You know, some of us are watching the Olympic trials. What we have is three people who've all written New Testament books of the Bible. So it's a little bit like the 1992 Olympic dream team. For basketball, you have Jordan, Magic, and Larry Bird all on the same team. And so here we get Peter, Paul, and James. And now, what does Peter say? We see that in verses 7 through 11. He says, stands up, and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What's he referring to? He's referring back to Acts 10 and 11, where he's sitting on the rooftop. The vision comes, and and what he sees is, you know, porcupine and and camel. And then he hears, kill and eat. And he says, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice reverberates that Peter could still hear it to this day, probably, right? Don't call what God has made clean unclean. Happens three different times, goes away. Angel shows up and says, guys are at the door, go with them. So guy sent from Cornelius, he goes with them. Then he goes to Cornelius's house and he's like, what do you guys want? And they said, we got a vision from the Lord and it told us to bring you. So we're ready to hear whatever you got to say. Preaches the gospel. And then what happens? Holy Spirit falls on them. It's stunning. It's so incredible. God has spoken. 
That the Gentiles can be saved, can be filled with the Spirit. And so Peter says, you remember how I told you that story. And it wasn't just a story. It was the reality of what happened. And do you remember what happened right after Acts 10? People criticized Peter in Acts 11. And they said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter says, dude, wait till you hear what happened. And he lays it all out for them. And what do they say? Well, it must be true. God himself has spoken. God has brought in the Gentiles. Now, look with me at verses 8 and 9. Because now Peter interprets what happens in verses 8 and 9. He says, and God who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he says, God knows the heart. So he sees past the external things. He sees past their lack of circumcision, and and then he bore witness to them. He witnessed the faith in them. And then he gave them the Holy Spirit. And he not only gave them the Holy Spirit, he gave it to them, gave him to them, in the same way that he gave him to us, poured out upon us so that we spoke in tongues and we were rejoicing. We got the same spirit the same way and God sees no distinction. So if God doesn't make a big deal about keeping the entire Old Testament law, God doesn't make a big deal about circumcision, why are we making a big deal about it? Why are we trying to add things to what God himself does not require? If God would have required it, would not have he have done something about it? He would have waited until they got baptized or would have waited until they started keeping the law and got circumcised before he gave them the spirit. But he didn't. Why are we trying to do what God himself isn't requiring? Now, in verse 10, he says, why are you putting God to the test? The, the, this wording for testing God kind of evokes the Old Testament of this rebelliousness or stubbornness, or it even actually goes all the way back to Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira put the Holy Spirit to the test of this rebellion. And so he says, when you try to add something on top of salvation, you're testing God. And then he says, we're putting the yoke of the law upon the Gentiles that we ourselves can't even bear. What he's saying there is, We know we don't get saved by keeping the law perfectly because how many of us have kept the law perfectly? None of us. What we need is grace. And that's what Jesus Christ brought is grace for us. And that's the same way the Gentiles get saved. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, understands grace. He understands unmerited favor reconciliation, redemption, when it's undeserved. Why are we trying to make it so that the Gentiles have to keep the law when we ourselves can't keep it either? So we can't earn salvation. Why are we putting this burden upon them? And then Peter goes to right to the heart of the issue in verse 11. This is the main point of our entire passage, and it's stunning. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Here's the main point of the passage. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. 
And that is good news, brothers and sisters. We're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by observing the Sabbath or a special diet or by baptism or by giving to the church or by speaking in tongues or by fasting or by anything else. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. It's not as though that Jesus came and he built the foundation and he says, now it's up to you. Here's a hammer, build the house. No. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. What did he mean? He meant it's finished. The Greek for finished is finished. Don't get, I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to, to think on this because I think for some of us, we mainly focus on progressive sanctification in our Christian life. We think of all the ways that we continue to need to grow and, and, and I got to get better. I got to fight sin. And, and, and some of that is really good. We, we want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. As we get saved, we want to be transformed to be more like Jesus. But some of us, we just get so hung up there. I just got to work harder. I got to be more disciplined. I, I got to do more and do more and do more. Don't get so caught up in progressive sanctification that you forget about your justification and your reconciliation and your redemption, and your regeneration, and God's unconditional election. This is the heart of the gospel. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is true for Jews and for Gentiles. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Not just that the Gentiles are going to get saved this way, but that's how we get saved. And the Gentiles get saved in the same exact way. And so I know for a group this size, for those watching online, there are some this morning who who don't know if you're saved, don't know if you're right with Jesus, and you're in the right place. This is where we wrestle with the biggest questions in life, and this is perhaps one of the biggest. What gets you saved? Can I work towards it? Can I contribute? Can I pull out my wallet and do a little bit more? Can I contribute to it? And I want you to hear in no uncertain terms, salvation doesn't come by three easy payments of $29.95. Salvation doesn't come by 12 rules that can change your life. Salvation does not come with three simple steps that can get you to heaven doesn't require you to take out a second mortgage or pay monthly dues or live in the right zip code. All that is needed for salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord, that he's the ruler of your life, and as Savior, as the one who forgives your sins. Amen? We cannot save ourselves. And the tragic reality is that we have a world full of people who are working really hard, who are really earnest, working every day to try to save themselves. And they're destined for hell. They're making pilgrimages. They're praying five times a day. They're working in all sorts of ways, examining trying all sorts of mystical, experiencing, mystical experiences to try to get themselves saved. And the only way you can be saved is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we turn to James's words in 13 to 21. It, it says 
Barnabas and Paul shared, and then we get James's reply to the council. And he says in verse 14, he says, Simeon, this is the Greek form of Simon, referring to Peter. He says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And then he cites Amos 9, 11, and 12. Now, a couple of notes here. If you read Amos 9, 11, and 12 in your Bible, it's going to read a little bit differently than how we see it here in Acts because he's likely quoting from the Septuagint, which would have been the Greek translation of Amos. And then notice also how James says the prophets, the prophets agree. He only cites Amos, but I think what he's doing there is he's referencing back. He's saying, all the prophets agree. Remember Abraham when, when, and when God came to him and he said, through you, I'm going to bless your family so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. What, what, what do you think he meant by all the families? You think he meant all of them? Like really? Not, not just the Jewish ones? Or, or Isaiah, I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles. So he's saying Amos is, is just a small snippet of all the prophets. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to what Amos 9, 11, and 12 is saying. Now, wh- what is Amos 9, 11, and 12 saying? Well, the book of Amos is mainly a book about judgment against the nation of Israel for their disobedience. You know, there, there's uh, talk of the rich sell the poor for a pair of sandals, uh, or the, the women in Amos are called cows because they're, they're being so fattened up and, and they don't care for the plight of the poor around them or the orphan. And so the, the book of Amos is, is just judgment after judgment after judgment. But right at the end, Amos 9, 11 and 12, God says he's going to restore Israel by rebuilding the tent of David. Now, this restoration of the tent of David is the Davidic king, which is Jesus. But then all those who will believe in Jesus, there's this remnant that's going to be brought up from among Israel. But then he also says in verse 17, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So part of this restoration to the kingdom, the tent of David is also going to be the inbringing of the Gentiles. And so what James is saying here is God has planned this from long ago. This isn't plan B. This isn't a mistake. But throughout the prophets, he said, I'm going to bring in the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to be welcomed in. And this is the point when that's to happen. They don't need to become Jews in order to come in. They're going to be called by my name. And so God has foreshadowed the inclusion of the Gentiles from long ago. So why are we putting obstacles in their way? And so he says, let's not trouble them. So here's the decision that is made. James is likely one of the elders of the Jerusalem church. And it says that everyone else agreed. And here's where it kind of gets a little bit tricky. They say circumcision is not needed. Adhering to the Old Testament Mosaic law is not needed. But then it seems like they say the opposite. They they, They give them four prohibitions. Things polluted by idols, abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from what's been strangled, and abstain from blood. Now, commentators are all over the map on what these things could mean and why they're here. But I'm going to give us two that I think that are most likely. The first is this, that some believe the reason that he gives these specific four prohibitions is because they're found all together in cultic pagan worship. 
And so pagan kind of worship feasts would have had sexual immorality and cult prostitutes and blood sacrifices and and all sorts of debauchery. And, and, And he's saying, Gentiles, don't participate in that because you've now been transformed to be like Jesus. So it's a prohibition from participating in any pagan worship and attending any pagan temples that probably would have been commonplace for the Gentiles. Not just like as a worship thing, but that's just what we do in our city and town. You know, everyone comes out when when it's that day and we just participate in that. And so he's saying, don't do that. I, I think the second reason, and this is the reason I lean towards, is that these four prohibitions are for the sake of preserving Jewish and Gentile relationships within the same church. Now, just imagine with me, if the Gentiles don't need to get circumcised, they don't need to observe the law, this could be a big stumbling block for the Jews. And so what I think this passage is doing is calling the Gentiles to be sensitive to Jewish conscience or Jewish scruples. Don't put intentional obstacles or stumbling blocks in the place kind of before Jewish believers. So with this decision, Jewish Christians would already need to forbear with the Gentiles. God has spoken, so we can't make circumcision or Sabbath or sacrifices or diet a main issue to fight over. But for the Gentiles, they're like, we're we're free. We're not under any of that. Does that mean I can put bacon in the deviled eggs when I bring it to the church potluck? And and I think what James is saying there is, don't do that. That's going to cause your Gentile brother to stumble. Leave the pulled pork at home. Don't bring the fried catfish to the church potluck. That's going to make them stumble. Don't bring the blood sausage to the cookout. Don't engage in any sexually promiscuous or immoral behavior that would make it difficult for a Jew to sit next to you on Sunday morning when they're worshiping. It's a little bit like this. I was talking to one of our global partners, and they're going back to a majority Muslim country. And I asked this global partner, you know, do you guys or does anyone eat pork in your country? And she said this, pork would never be eaten. We have been told that some people will never eat any food they are served at our house because we do not follow their laws and are in general considered unclean. The fact that pork does not exist in our majority Muslim context means that all they know about it is that it's disgusting, it's dirty, and unclean. I might equate it to someone from a country who eats dogs, trying to convince us that they're really delicious and we should give them a try. Just let that land on you for a moment. Would you like a little bit of salt with your golden doodle? The, 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 the instinctive like repulsion that we feel if someone were to serve us that, like you would probably walk out of the house. You would just be appalled is, is what the Jews feel about the Gentiles. And so he's saying, don't make it a wedge issue that's going to divide the church. Jesus' blood covers over all of us. We get saved in the same way to be part of the same body. Don't let this issue divide us so that we're two separate churches. You got the Jewish church and then you get the Gentile church and they never ever shall mix. They'll be like oil and water forever. No, Jesus died. For one church, one spirit, one Lord and Savior. And so be a united church. 
And so for the Jews, don't flaunt your freedoms to make Gentiles or to make Jews stumble. And I think this interpretation is further supported by verse 21. Look with me at verse 21. It says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is a little bit confusing, but I think it could have two possible meanings. The verse could be taken first as the law of Moses would have been read in synagogues, where there are Jews living all across the early century, and Gentiles would clearly know that if you're going to associate with Jews, that you're going to have to abide by some of the Mosaic law, like Leviticus 17 and 18 sort of lists out, this is how foreigners are to relate to the Jewish people if they're going to live among them. The second meaning is that for the gospel to continue to go forward to reach Jews, that we're going to need to be sensitive to Mosaic law in an ongoing way. So this is a missionary concern. So it it, it goes a little bit like this. There are still more Jews out there. And and what are they doing? They're gathering in their synagogues and they're hearing the law read. They haven't cast aside the law. And so in order for the church full of Jews and Gentiles to not get a bad name from these Jews, we're going to have to live a certain way. And for the missionary endeavor to continue to advance, to bring in more Jews, we're going to have to live a certain way in order to bring them in. We We see that in Paul where he was willing to get Timothy circumcised, even though he didn't need to because Timothy was going to minister among Jews. It's a little bit of that. If you're going to reach Somali Muslims here in the Twin Cities, don't begin by bringing them, or inviting them to your hot dog cookout with, with, with brats and blood sausage. Serve something else. Show missionary-like concern for those around you. Because God's grace has saved one people. There's one way to be saved, one salvation, one kingdom of Christ. And so salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, we're going to transition to scene three. We're going to look at this very briefly, 22 to 35. They get the delivery of the decision. So they craft a letter, and it's going to be sent by Barnabas, Paul, Judas, and Silas. We're told that these are significant leading men of significant reputation, so it adds to the validity of the decision. And then notice in verse 28 that this word comes not only from the apostles and elders, but from the Holy Spirit as well. And they communicate. No circumcisions required, but they call them to abstain from these four things. And Luke tells us in verse 31 that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. We don't need to throw off everything about our culture in order to become Jews, in order to have Jesus. All I have to do is wherever I'm at, come straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they don't need to get circumcised. They don't need to follow the Mosaic law and I think the reason they rejoiced because of its encouragement is because those four prohibitions weren't burdensome. It's very likely that they were already doing those things as new believers walking in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they have specific instructions to preserve the unity of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ continues to advance and build his church without any obstacles, barriers, or burdens. The church doesn't get divided and split apart permanently. Praise God. It's amazing. The faith has been passed down 
faithfully all the way until this day. Now we get scene four, 36 to 41. Scene four is where we get a disagreement that ends in separation. Verse 39 says, there arose a sharp disagreement so that Barnabas and Paul separated from each other. So John Mark left uh, Barnabas and Paul back in chapter 13. It's chapter 13, verse 13. And, and, and so he sort of abandoned them in the middle of their missionary journey. And so Barnabas says, like, let's give him a second chance. Let's bring him along. He's actually my cousin, says that in Colossians 4.10. Uh, and, and Paul's like, nope, no way. He abandoned us. He's going to flake. Like, we're not bringing him. And, and this leads to a really sharp disagreement. And I think this does two things for us. First is that Luke gives us the good and the bad and the ugly. In the church, at times, there are hard things. He's not hiding the hardships that come in church life. And secondly, we see that God even redeems this dispute, this disagreement, this separation, so that what we get now is two missionary teams instead of one. Verse 40, two missionary teams that are commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. God redeems even this sharp disagreement, and he redeems it even further, because later on, Paul's going to say, bring John Mark, because he's very useful to me. You can look that up in Colossians 4.10 and 2 Timothy 4.11. So God restores even this relationship. This also illustrates that there are times when brothers in Christ may part ways because of disagreements, even sharp disagreements. Maybe over personnel or philosophy of ministry. So many of you are aware that we recently had two pastoral staff resignations at the downtown campus. And these are fellow brothers in Christ. And in some ways, my heart is grieved. And and while it's not my place to share all the details surrounding their departures and the reasons for it, I think it would be appropriate to say that it's in the spirit and vein of Acts 15. Sharp disagreements, even among brothers, may at times necessitate transition. And yet we can still commend these brothers to the Lord And we can be reassured that the Lord Jesus Christ is working to advance and build his church for the good of his people and for his glory to go to the very ends of the earth. It's just part of church life. And so you may have questions. And if you do have questions, you can ask any of your North elders and you can be praying for the downtown campus as they have a Q&A coming up in a few weeks. I want to apply this passage for us. So how should we apply this passage this morning? I see two guiding principles that I want us to see. The first is this. Beware of the danger of establishing extra-biblical restrictions. Beware of the danger of adding extra-biblical restrictions. So we see that in the Judaizers who say, well, we know they got saved by the grace of God, but they haven't done X, Y, and Z. So do that too. Here are these extra biblical things that you need to do in order to get saved. And, and this is what the Roman Catholic Church often does. This is what, quote unquote, Christian cults often do. Yes, we believe in the Bible plus this other random book that this one dude wrote. And, and, and we want you to kind of obey all of it or, you know, pay us three easy payments of twenty nine ninety five. 
and they may be well-meaning, but any attempt to add to the gospel undermines and robs it of its power and of its glory. It's what Paul says in Colossians. Don't let anyone take you captive by deceit and philosophy and human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world. Don't let anyone add anything to you by requiring you to to see visions and angels or whatever else or food or not eating food or fasting a certain amount. The way we get saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beware of taking something you care a lot about and making it a requirement for salvation. I think this principle can be extended across our families uh, as well as our church. And let me just give an example. For parents, we need to help our children differentiate what's needed for salvation and and what are the kind of outflow or implications of being saved so that we walk in a manner worthy of salvation. And and then there's other things that the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about. They're just going to be rules in your house. And I think it's really important to distinguish what goes in our house and then what God demands of us because we're Christians. So for example, if you say good Christians don't drink, get tattoos, or wear short skirts, they're going to leave for college and they're going to find out that good Christians, or at least Christians, do in fact drink, have tattoos, and maybe wear short skirts. And they're going to say, well, if mom and dad were wrong about that, I wonder if they were wrong about everything else. So differentiate between what you believe is wise for your family And what God commands, such as forbidding gossip or lying or using God's name in vain. I think this extends to church life as well. We don't tell you how to vote. Thank God. We don't educate. We don't tell you how to educate your children. And we don't spend, tell you how to spend your money. But we do want you to thoughtfully consider the biblical values and principles and what the Bible says when you go to the voting booth. And we want you to take very seriously your responsibility to raise up your children in the fear and discipline or admonition of the Lord. And we want you to be good stewards of the resources that God has given you so that we might see the gospel advance to the very ends of the earth. The second guiding principle is this. That we as believers may at times need to embrace the inconvenience of restricting our freedoms for the sake of others. We see this in the prohibitions given to the Gentiles. This is to preserve cross-cultural fellowship and enable cross-cultural evangelistic mission. A Muslim or Jewish neighbor isn't coming over for dinner. If you serve the blood sausage, serve something else. And at times, we ought to restrict our freedoms in order to preserve the unity that we have here in the body of Christ. Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. He says, To the Jew I became a Jew, and to those outside the law I became as those outside the law, so that I might reach some of them. And our global partners instinctively have to do this. And yet here in Minnesota, we will instinctively, or not instinctively, we will by necessity need to begin doing this if we want to have a fruitful witness with all the different people who are coming into our region. If we want to engage them with the good news of the gospel, and it's not just Jews or Muslims with sort of the dietary laws, but it's going to be some of the other stuff. At my previous church, there used to be this Cuban guy that would come up and kiss me all the time. Maybe not all the time, sometimes. And it was the most awkward thing, but that was a normal greeting for them. 
And so I embraced it. I didn't kiss him back, but it was just, you know, I let him kiss me, right? So th- that was embracing, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live with you I- in terms of your culture so that we might greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and he put that into application. I'm not suggesting we do it here, but uh, we can just begin to see. We're, we're going to have to rethink some of our cultural habits so that we can reach others for the sake of Christ. Final application. Rejoice that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Knowing that salvation comes by grace only, alone, should make us the most thankful, humble, and happy people in all of the world. Amen? Humbled. I can't believe you would save me, Lord, for all that I've done. And that all that I do now doesn't bring me any closer, doesn't earn anything. And even if I fail, you're going to hold me fast. Makes us the most thankful, humble, and happy people in all the world. To add to grace is to mess it all up. I'm going to end with this. Imagine Gordon Ramsay, world-class chef. He whips up a surf and turf meal for you. So lobster tail with filet mignon with all the fixings, fancy ingredients, truffle oil and grass-fed beef and all farm-to-table ingredients. And and he kind of puts it before you. And you take one bite and you say, oh, it needs something. And you pull out that Heinz ketchup and you just (laughs) douse it. I know some of you do this. (laughs) No! We cannot supplement the greatest truth in all the world. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Amen? Let's pray. Oh Lord, let that truth water our souls this morning so that we would be the most thankful, humble, and happy people in all the world and that we would open our mouths and invite others into the joy of this kingdom, and into the joy of the Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.